Amen. Good morning, church. We're going to walk through this Gospel of John together, studying it for 16 weeks. Now, it's 21 chapters, so you do the math. That means we're going to have to be uh, selective with what we cover. Um, It's a a longer series than we typically do, but it's still shorter than the full 21 chapters of John's Gospel. And we want to get to the resurrection account in John 20 on Easter Sunday. So we've got some ground to cover Having said that, uh, before we move too quickly, we've just got to be in John 1 one more week. Because John 1 is just huge, right? The, the passage that we looked at and just really scratched the surface last week, the prologue of John's gospel, is the whole book distilled in one drop. I mean, we could have spent weeks in the prologue of John's gospel. And we can't leave chapter 1 because we already begin to see some really important patterns of discipleship that will emerge in fuller form in later chapters, so we just got to look at it. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35, if you'd follow along as I read. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one whom Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip answered. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi Nathanael replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus responded to him, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What does it mean to be a Christian? So we live in interesting times, to be sure, interesting times, and a thrice-married prosperity preacher worth millions, Paula White, released her new book in October to the rave reviews and endorsements from prominent and politically connected evangelicals whose names would be noteworthy and known by almost everyone in this room. 
they would give their raving endorsements despite the fact that Paula White has gone on record for saying, quote, Jesus Christ is not the only begotten Son of God, but rather he was just the first. If that wasn't enough, she announced on TVN in 2007, quote, anyone who tells you to deny yourself is from Satan. Luke 9.23, then Jesus said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. We have a crisis in the church. We have a crisis when Christian teachers and Christians don't understand the rudiments of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, following Jesus Christ. And the Apostle John has a gift, and his gift is clearing fog. We live in theological fuzzyville, and John's gospel, as we saw, he had this gift, and he wielded his gift to great effect in his letter, 1 John, which we studied in the fall. He cleared the fog in that letter, and he's come around, and he's doing the thing he loves to do again. And he's answering the question in so many words, what is a disciple? What is a follower of Jesus Christ? So four truths, clarifying truths, emerge in our text in John's first chapter of his gospel. Number one, disciples don't just hang out with Jesus. Disciples don't just hang out with Jesus. They learn about Jesus. And you hear preaching about Jesus right here in the first chapter because here comes the first New Testament preacher. His name is John the Baptist. He shows up in in verse 29, right? Here comes Jesus. John the Baptist is preaching. Here comes Jesus. And John the Baptist points and he says, behold the Lamb of God. Just to clarify, this is who he is. He's the one who comes to take away the sin of the world. He's preaching Jesus right there at the Jordan. And I love the words in verse 30 especially the Christian Standard Bible translation, when it says, this is the one I told you about. John the Baptist had been laying out the red carpet to prepare them to receive Messiah when he arrived. He says, and when Jesus shows up at the River Jordan, John the Baptist says, this is the one I've preached about. This is the one we prepared to meet. Disciples, friends, learn about Jesus. We learn of Jesus, we listen to Jesus. Look at verse 37. I love the verbiage there. The two disciples heard him and followed Jesus. Who's the him? John the Baptist. So the disciples heard John the Baptist and followed Jesus. The desired effect of Christian preaching hasn't changed in 2,000 years. They heard John the Baptist and they didn't follow John the Baptist. They heard John the Baptist and they followed Jesus. And that story continues when the Apostle Paul, 30 years later, writes, we preach Christ, not ourselves. We preach Christ and ourselves as your servants for his sake. We're preaching Christ. It's a Christ-centered proclamation around which the church has gathered for 2,000 years. And that legacy of preaching carried on. The Apostle Paul preached Christ. Peter preached Christ and Chrysostom and Tertullian and Irenaeus and Augustine and Luther and Edwards and Spurgeon, Newton preached Jesus. They heard John the Baptist and they followed Jesus. Here's the implication of it in your notes. Jesus doesn't seek spectators. 
He doesn't seek spectators. So we're going to see in due course in John chapter 6, and Jesus has these massive crowds. You see thousands and thousands of people standing around him in ministry world. Sometimes this is called low-hanging fruit, right? So there's a lot of people right there. The, the harvest is right there in front of you. You've got this opportunity. You've just worked a miracle, and everybody's there hanging out, eating miracle sandwiches, right? The, he just fed the 5,000. And now they're right there hanging on every word. And what, what happens? Jesus pulls out the most barn burner sermon. He pulls out of all his sermons, he pulls out this one labeled, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And it's like, that's the one you're going with today? You got thousands of people right here and you're going to do the eat my flesh, drink my blood sermon and they all hit the exits. They hit the exits so much so that he turns to his own disciples and he says, are you leaving too? It's almost like he's standing at the back door. Strange to see these actions in the pages of the Gospels. Jesus doesn't want spectators. He doesn't seek mere believers either. Jesus doesn't seek mere believers. So we're going to see what he wants in a minute when he speaks very openly and very plainly with those two words, follow me. That's what he wants. He doesn't want fans. He wants disciples. He wants followers, committed, devoted followers. But you read through the pages of the Gospels, and sometimes you get the impression that Jesus doesn't want followers, that he doesn't want people to believe in him. So just flip over one page to John chapter 2. We'll come back to John 1 in just a second. John chapter 2, verse 23. While Jesus was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. So many believers in the miracles, which seems like a good thing, but verse 24, Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. And it goes on to say, he knew what was in the hearts of men. What's that mean? It means belief in Jesus' ability to confer blessing isn't the faith that he's ultimately looking for. He said, I could have those kind of followers all day, work a miracle, and suddenly, poof, here's a crowd of people. But then his words, after he was done with the miracles and the show and the people put the popcorn away and he said, okay, now it's time for me to clarify why I'm really here to proclaim to you a kingdom and a king and a message of repentance and faith and all of them hit the doors. He knew what was in people's hearts. So disciples don't just hang out with Jesus. Number two, disciples follow Jesus. You know, there are people... Perhaps you're one of these people who, like, there is one thing in their lives that is the gravitational center that pulls everything into orbit, right? Everything falls into place around that one thing. Their commitment to that thing makes a ton of decisions for them in advance because they're committed to that thing. The last book that I finished at the very end of 2019 was a memoir, oddly enough, about long-distance running. I say oddly enough because I'm really not into long-distance running. I don't do much long-distance running. Um, but it's a Japanese novelist, and his, his writing was translated into English, and his thing is running. And he talks about how he has gotten up for decades, for over two decades. He gets up every morning, six days a week. He runs a 10K six days a week. 
He's run a full marathon once a year for over 20 years. He's done multiple full-scale triathlon events. He's into this thing, right? He, running is his one thing, and he, he decides to do something or not do something based on its impact on his running. He decides to eat something or not eat something simply based on its impact on his running. It's his one thing. Well, Jesus, when he calls him to follow me, that's essentially what he's saying. I'm your new one thing. Everything, I'm the gravitational center of your life that pulls everything into this orbit. That's what the word disciple means in the New Testament. So it's the Greek word methetes, it it means student. So when we think full-time student, we think, you know, 12 hours, 12 credit hours, something like that. That's not how they thought of discipleship in the first century And that's clear because you can pick up even in the first question that they ask. We put it in your notes so we can make this observation together. They ask, where are you staying? Because discipleship meant you live with the master. It meant you shadow this person. You listen to their teaching. You live in their presence. You restructure your whole world around this person. Your whole life to follow Jesus means you can't stay where you were. So I love this question where they say, where are you staying? We'll follow you to where you live. We're coming. We're orienting our lives around you. Here's the question for us to think about. Does your relationship with Jesus touch every aspect of your life? When when Jesus says, come and see, he's saying, I'm it from now on. If you're going to follow me, I'm the main thing. I'm your ultimate pursuit. You know, in our culture, there, there's a number of things that we hate. And one of the things that we hate in our culture is submission. We hate the concept of absolute authority provided it's outside of me. Now, we love autonomy. I love to be the authority, but I don't like to have outside authorities speaking, shaping, tweaking my life from outside and having control and authority over me. We want to maintain control. That's a a cherished value in the West, right? You think for a second about the differences between three categories of existence. So let's think about some part of inanimate creation. So let's just say a fork, right? So there's a fork. There's one level of existence, and then significantly above that would be a human being, an image bearer made in the image of God. So we're at a different level of existence and value. And then let's multiply that to the nth degree and talk about God, the ultimate, the sumum bonum, the highest of all. He is in a category all his own. Now, We're going to relate to all three of those the same way, or are we going to relate to them in fundamentally different ways with respect to the relative value of each category? So just just take those first two categories. So do you treat a person the way you treat a fork? You're not supposed to, right? So because your your connection to a fork is is what? It's not a relationship. It's it's a utilitarian arrangement. You, You use the fork or you don't use the fork. You like the fork, you don't like the fork. If it's useful to you, great. If it's not, discard it. If you do the same thing to people, you got problems. Right, so you you have different scales of value. So you move from the fork to the person, now you move from the person to God. How are we as disciples, 
as creatures meant to relate to the creator, to relate to God himself. He is the highest order of being altogether. And Jesus Christ, John clarifies, in the very first sentence of this gospel, is God. He was with God in the beginning. He was God in the beginning. And everything in creation exists because of him. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. He is not a fork. You do not have a utilitarian relationship with Jesus. He is not just your pal, your chum, another human being. He's God. It's at a different scale of being. He is, I loved out. Dave Halpern was even praying and reminding us heaven is his throne, earth is his footstool. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth and the sea and everything that is in it. Psalm 146, he determines the number of the stars. He gives them all their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble and casts the wicked to the ground. That's Jesus, how do you relate to someone like that? Do do you ask a being of that magnitude to come into your life and be your assistant? Is that the nature of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ? No, friends, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You put that in perspective, I was reading in a science journal this week, this, these were astronomers approximate there might be, quote, as many as three sextillion stars in the universe. That's three followed by 23 zeros, more than all the grains of sand on earth. And Jesus holds them. Jesus upholds them by the word of his power, sustains them. All things were made through him, and without him was nothing made that was made. You see the wisdom of Christ, the risen, exalted Lord, preeminent king of the universe. You see his wisdom and his knowledge and his love and his omnipotence and his majesty and his power. He commands the waves and calls the stars out by name. And we think that the best future for us is for a being like this to let me call the shots? That's completely upside down. The New Testament doesn't recognize that at all as discipleship or as Christian faith. Let's, let's talk discipleship. Let's kind of come out of the nebulous and stratosphere and let's talk about our everyday life. So you see in Scripture, you're a follower of Jesus and you see in Scripture that Jesus teaches that sex outside of marriage is wrong. So the question is, what's your next move? Do you say to such a one, I'll take that under advisement? Let me process that for a few days. You know, because in the situation that I'm in, actually it seems pretty right right now, and I know that's your truth, but this is my truth. Do we talk to such a one? Is the glorious, exalted Christ in that kind of way? No. True disciples delight in the commands of Jesus. True disciples delight in the commands of Jesus. Go to Psalm 1. We've lived there over the past few years. We've gone to Psalm 1 two or three times just to look at it again and again and again because Psalm 1 is the mark of a godly man. And what is the mark of a godly man in Psalm 1? He delights in the law 
of the Lord. And on it, he's meditating, he's ruminating day and night, sinking his mind into the truth and commands of God. In other words, Psalm 1 tells us that the godly man, the godly woman, loves to have God tell us what to do. We love it that way because he's God. He's wise. He loves us. We trust him. So what does that mean practically? It means Christian friend. Don't neglect God's word this year. Soak your mind in the truth of God's word. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the commands of Christ, the promises of grace. Get it in your bloodstream by the work of the Holy Spirit. The Christian is increasingly convinced that my best life is lived in dependence on his power and obedience to his word. Dependence on his spirit, obedience to everything he says. Friends, the only way out of this me-centered, narcissistic counterfeit that passes for New Testament Christianity is found in these two words that'll change your life if you do them, if you embrace them. Follow me. That's the nature of this thing. Follow me. Jesus doesn't want fans. He summons disciples. What does that mean? It means we... We can't say, I'd like your blessings, I'd like your miracles, I'd like your presence, but my money's mine, my weekends are mine, my relationships are mine, right? No, that, that's not how it goes. Jesus won't sign your prenup. That's, that's not the nature of this arrangement. But we want, this is what easy believism does in our culture, and it's doing it in spades right here in Birmingham, Alabama, is... We want the fruit of transformation without the means of transformation. Say that again. We want the fruit of transformation without the means of transformation. So think of that practically. We we want the contentment of Sarah Edwards. We want the boldness and courage of Jim Elliott. We want the compassion and endurance of Corey Ten Boom, right? But but we don't want to experience that on the path of discipleship, the costly path of discipleship. I want deep faith, but I don't want the trials that forge that deep faith. I want godly children, but I don't want, I don't want to do the work of having a God-centered home. I want change without discipline. I want revival without intercession. I want purity without warfare. I want newness, but I don't want the old me to die, at least not yet. That is so much of what passes for Christianity in our culture. And, and Jesus stands here in the pages of the Gospels, and he says, here's how it goes. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Christians follow Jesus. It's hard to come up with a less controversial truth in the New Testament. Christians follow Jesus. Disciples listen to Jesus. Doesn't mean we do it perfectly. We fall, but by God's grace, we get back up, right? We're stumbling along the way, but we're stumbling forward. That's the nature of the Christian life. Disciples follow Jesus. Number three, disciples invite others to come and see. Disciples invite others to come and see. I love this little series of verbs in verse 40. You might want to underline these or circle them or something. 
They heard, followed, found, and told. Heard, followed, found, and told. It's a natural progression of the Christian life. You see it in Andrew in this first series in verse 4, 40 through 42, and you see the same exact pattern in Nathaniel. These are the first two believers in John's gospel, and you see the same patterns right there from day one. Verse 41, we have found the Messiah. There's Andrew. We found him, and then what does he do? Verse 42, come with me. He brings Simon to Jesus. Same pattern, Philip. Next day, verse 45, we found him. We found the one Moses wrote about. What's the next thing he does? Verse 46, come and see. We found him, come with me. We found him, grabs the hand, brings him to Jesus. Andrew brings Simon. Next day, Philip brings Nathaniel. Each one brought one. What would happen in our city if, by the grace of God, each one brought one? There is an enthusiasm, I think, in those words. This is, you know, when he says, we have found, come and see, that is not the voice of, you know, Bueller, Bueller. It is not just this monotone, unaffected, detached thing. It's, we found him. You won't believe it. He's the Messiah. He's, he's the answer. What, what's Messiah? In, in their culture and in their language, Messiah meant, we found the answer. The one that we've been waiting for for centuries, the one that makes everything right that went sideways in Genesis chapter 3. We found that guy. You've got to come and you have to see him. You have to meet him. It's like they couldn't help themselves. There was this apostolic enthusiasm. Apostolic enthusiasm drives apostolic witness. Even the author of this book, the Apostle John, it's 60 years later He is an old man. He's looking back on this moment, and he remembers the clock on the wall. He says, it was 4 p.m. that afternoon, 60 years ago, changed my life. 4 p.m., 60 years ago. He has been utterly changed. And then when he writes his letter, 1 John, that we started in the fall, how does he start? He starts by saying, what we have seen, we proclaim to you so that our joy may be full. In other words, we found him And then we told you, and we told you, and that increases our joy. That's the spirit of mission. We found him. Come and see. The gospel advances through Andrews. People like Andrew, right here in this text, Andrew hardly has his own identity. He's always referred to as the brother of Simon Peter. Simon Peter gets to be named, and his name stands alone. Andrew always gets to be Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. If you had an older brother, you know what this is like. I I know exactly what this is like. I grew up, my big brother was, he was the homecoming king at Grace King High School. He was the starting quarterback. He was the starting point guard. He had set the records at Girard Playground for high jump competition, right? So I'm, I'm coming behind an impossibly awesome guy. Right, even thought about this in the first service, it just came to me. I remember this so vividly. So my brother had a nickname that was given to him by like everybody on the basketball team at Grace King. They called him Skillet because he was so hot from outside. So they just called him Skillet. And there was one day when I was in the gym and all the basketball players were out there and they were warming up and stuff, and I, I grabbed a basketball and I started to throw it. And this, I've never shot like this in my whole life. 
and I'm just, it's going in, and the goal just seems to be getting bigger and bigger. Everywhere I'm going, I'm shooting it, and it's going in. And they gave me a nickname, and they called me Pots and Pants. And I look back on that and think, even my nickname is derivative and less awesome. Like, skillet, pots and pans. Like, there's, it's not even the same world. Andrew is Simon Peter's brother. And yet, you know, you almost feel for Andrew. It's like, Peter wouldn't have ever become the incendiary flame of the book of Acts had I not grabbed him by the hand and said, come meet Jesus. I met him. You got to come. So it's almost like Andrew's like, I at least get the assist. Right, the, all the 3,000 people who believed after Peter's great sermon in Acts chapter 2, I get the assist. I brought this man, and he met Jesus, right? Andrew, verse 42, I just love those words. Brought Simon to Jesus. I want to learn that better in 2020. What it looks like to take the hand of a person and put it into the hand of the Savior to bring people to Jesus. You think about our efforts as a church in city ministries and in global mission work around the world. It's all aimed at that. It's all aimed at people finding their way to Jesus, bringing people to Jesus and doing that through, we talk about this all the time, through our praying and our giving and our going. So when it comes to giving, the numbers are all in from this past year, and it's incredibly encouraging because the story of giving and your passion for the nations to hear and be brought to Jesus is a story where you combine what was given to the global offering with the missions portion of what came in for Roots and Reach, and we invested $840,000 so that the nations might be brought to Jesus. But that, that's awesome. Praise God. He's put it in our hearts. The spirit of Andrew in our hearts. We want people to come to Jesus to find their way to Christ. Andrew has two cameo appearances in the Gospel of John. He only shows up just a couple of times. And what's he doing every time? Bringing people to Jesus. He brings his brother Simon, and then you check him out a few chapters later, and he's bringing a little boy. The boy's got five loaves and two fish. The reason you saw the miracle break out on the hillside that day is Andrew looked down and he saw this boy with a Happy Meal and he said, come with me, let's go to Jesus. And Jesus multiplied it for great blessing. Oh, for a church full of Andrews this year, right? What is a disciple? Disciples don't just hang out with Jesus, they follow Jesus. They invite others to follow and know Jesus. Number four, Disciples are seen, named, and rewarded by Jesus. Look at verse 42. So Andrew brings his brother Simon to Jesus, and I love these words, when Jesus saw him. Jesus had a, he had a piercing gaze like no other. No person has walked this earth who had a piercing gaze like Jesus Christ. And here's here's what happened. Simon got caught in that gaze. He got caught in the gaze of Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul got caught in that same gaze a few years later on the road to Damascus. He got 
caught, right? If you're a Christian, there was a day, I know your story, if you're a follower of Jesus, there was a day when the gaze of Christ in the gospel stopped you in your tracks, you got caught. It summoned you, it pulled you into a gravitational center. It sucked you toward him. You were drawn to him like no other. I love it, you know, Jesus, he sees Simon. He doesn't ask, what's your name? That's what the rest of us all do when we come up to somebody we've never met before. Jesus doesn't say, what's your name? He says, here's your name. Your name is Simon. (laughs) When Philip brings Nathaniel, the same thing happens. It's like Jesus met them before they met. Because he does the same thing to Nathaniel. Look at verse 47. Jesus sees Nathaniel coming and he says, he holds his arm out and he says, Here, truly, is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And what does Nathaniel say? How do you know me? <laughs> We've never talked before, and yet here you are calling out the central aspect of my personality. And Nathaniel says, How do you know me? And Jesus says, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Something happened under that fig tree. Perhaps the thing that happened under that fig tree wasn't known by anyone. I'm saying that because the implication of the text doesn't seem to be that this was just a random observation of a guy under a fig tree, like you and I could see somebody under that tree right there and say, I saw you under the fig tree, and nobody's amazed by that. Something seemed to happen under that fig tree that nobody else knew about because when Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree before we met, Nathaniel says, you must be God. <laughs> you, you are the king of Israel. Now I know who you are. In other words, this was something miraculous. This was a, a miraculous optics, a miraculous vision. This knowledge of Jesus was incisive. It cut through outward things. Jesus does the same thing. You check him out in four chapters. In John chapter four, he meets this woman at a well and he starts telling her her whole life. Here's your past. Here's what's been going on. Moments later, she finds life in him and what does she do? She runs through town and she says, come meet a man who knew everything I ever did. Which doesn't sound like it would incentivize anybody to come meet him, right? Which tells me that the spirit in which she ran out and said, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did, had to be something like this. Come meet a man who told me everything I ever did and loved me. He loved me despite my past. He put my shame away. Friends, Jesus knows your past. He saw you under your fig tree. The things that nobody else saw, the things that we want to keep from view, he sees them and he somehow not only sees them and knows them, but loves us with a penetrating, transformative love. There are so many people in this city wrapped in guilt and shame. There might be people all over this room. You're afraid to be known. And it's based on, honestly, it's just based on precedent. You're afraid to be known because you've concluded, the more I'm known, the more I'm rejected. And the one who knows you best will never reject you. He puts your shame away. He buries it under his cross. This is the beauty of the gospel. He is the very one who knows you better than anyone, and he is the very one who covers your past and gives you a new name. He says, your name was Cephas. Your name a moment ago was Simon. 
Your new name is Cephas. Now you're Peter. Now you're a rock. It's almost like he's speaking both simultaneously about the whole of Peter's past and the whole of Peter's future. He's prophesying. This is you now. Jesus gives you a new name. Peter meets Jesus on that day and he's headstrong and he's unstable and he's shifty. And honestly, his transformation doesn't happen in a day because he's still headstrong and shifty and unstable a few years later. But then you check him out when the Holy Spirit comes and inhabits the man, Peter, and he becomes this flame of bold proclamation throughout the book of Acts. My prayer this week has been that as we look at Christ in this text, that some here in this room would find yourself caught in the gaze of Jesus, the one who sees right through you, who knows all the things that are in your past and who loves you and invites you to drink of his grace because of the work he's done on the cross. My hope and prayer is that there might be people here, even this morning, who you, for the first time in your life, you let your guard down and you come to this one because you know he's, he's safe. Your shame is safe with him. He knows your past and he has the authority to rename you. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means turning your whole life over to Jesus Christ. He is the one who came. He is the one who died on the cross. He is the one who rose again. Will you turn from whatever it is that you were trusting a moment ago and run to this one savior of the world? Do it, do it today, do it now. Last point, Jesus will show you greater things in coming days. Jesus responds, you see there at the end of the chapter, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? In other words, it's sort of like the fig tree thing did it by itself, right? You will see greater things than this. Here's what you're going to see. You're going to see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Clearly, there's backstory here, right? So this reaches all the way back centuries to one of the first people in the Old Testament in the patriarchal system, right? So God names himself in the Old Testament as the God of Abraham and Isaac and this guy, Jacob. And Jacob has a dream deep in the pages of the Old Testament. He has a dream, and in the dream there's a ladder, and there are angels descending and ascending on the ladder between heaven and earth. The big idea is that this dream has a connection between earth and heaven. The problem is Jacob woke up. It was a dream. But it's not a dream anymore. Jesus stands full height in John chapter 1, and he says, I'm that ladder. I connect earth and heaven. I bring you to God. I bring God to you. That's me. That's what I'm here to do. You're going to see unbelievable things. You thought the fig tree was awesome. You're going to see unbelievable things in coming days. You keep, you stay with me, and it's going to be awesome. It's going to be an adventure. Look, this is Christianity. It is to submit our present desires to a higher calling, to a higher allegiance, to know and follow Jesus Christ, and Jesus said, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, Jesus says, those are the terms. There's no negotiation, there's no haggling, there's no bartering, those are the terms. We take Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we build our lives around him and his kingdom, or we perish, like those, that's the way it is. Those are not popular truths. 
even in Christian churches. But they are the terms as stated by Christ himself. And to embrace the life of faith is, in a kind of surprising twist ending, is to gain everything and lose nothing. That's the surprise twist ending that you only experience once you're inside. From the inside, you realize, I lost zero. I gained everything. I sold my treasure and I bought a field and it was the best decision I ever made. Jesus, what's he doing? Right at the end of John chapter one, he's preaching future grace. Jesus doesn't wait for day two in Nathaniel's discipleship journey to go ahead and tell him, you won't believe what I have for you. Greater things than you've ever imagined are coming. You will see greater things. Our friend Ray Ortland who pastored for several years Emmanuel Church in Nashville, and he put together a statement, a kind of rallying cry called the Emmanuel Mantra years ago. And all the members at Emmanuel know this mantra, and it goes like this. Number one, I'm a complete idiot. I love the way it starts. I'm a complete idiot. Two, my future is incredibly bright. Three, anyone can get in on this. I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright, and anyone can get in in on this. Look, only in Christ do optimism and realism speak with one voice. Jesus calls us to follow and it promises to be an adventure. And in the adventure of discipleship, we're going to discover through the ups and downs that he is completely and absolutely faithful. And we're going to discover on the road of discipleship that everything that we seem like we lost was outweighed by what we gained. That's discipleship. The question is, are you ready to follow Jesus? That's the call.